Good morning. My name is Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling. Good morning, Brett. How are you? I'm terrific. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. Good weekend? Yeah, it was a good weekend. You, I guess, got off to, got the weekend off to a good start. Well, Bomber the, game? Well, the Blue Bombers got it off to a good start. 33-13 preseason win over the Edmonton Eskimos. Our friend Chris Trevler went 10 for 10. Oh, he played. He did. He played very well. Very impressive. Uh, we will find out over the next couple of days if he's moved his way into the second spot on the depth chart as it pertains to being quarterback. But he was extremely impressive in his Blue Bomber debut, including an 80-yard touchdown pass. It wasn't the prettiest thing ever drawn up, but it worked out just fine. Thank you very much. So the Bombers doing what they needed to do on the home field. And of course, uh, our broadcast and our coverage uh, underway for the season. Doug Brown... Bob Irving, the legendary voice of the Blue Bombers and a cast of thousands on Friday night. And on my way home... Before you get there, though, yeah. I just want to add some context to the Chris Streveler situation. Oh, of course. Chris Streveler is backup QB or contender. He's contender to be the backup quarterback. He went to the University of South Dakota, played for the Coyotes, and we had him on Breakfast with the Bombers, I guess about five weeks ago. And uh, in our research, we looked at game film and did some other, uh, you know, some assorted research on the young man. And he was outstanding. Interview was really pleasant. And, and he so looks like Thor. He, or Chris Hemsworth. He does look like <laughs> Thor. You look like Thor throwing the hammer around on on Friday night. So you and I have a soft spot in our heart already for this young man. We're hoping that he'll make the team. And he took a gigantic step forward in terms of making that a reality. So, yes, thanks for sure. <laughs> reeling me in there and all the excitement. I wanted to say on the way home Friday night, went through downtown and people on the street and of course we got so used to that during the Jets playoff run seeing so many people downtown it was you know there was no party on the street on Friday night but there were people everywhere and I didn't realize what was happening at Bell MTS Place. Well that's where I was while well, you were at IGF or IGF Investors Group Field I was at Bell MTS Place uh, because Kevin Hart was in town. Right how was he? Uh, he was great. You know what? I I'm not. I went into the show because my girlfriend had tickets, and I said, "Well, what? Why not? I've never been to an arena comedy show. I've been to shows at Rumors, and I've been to the Pantages. I saw Craig Ferguson at Pantages, and I've seen Adam Carolla at uh, Burton Cummings, but I've never been to Bell MTS Place or any arena for that matter to see a show. And uh, for the the production was cool because they were using the the what do you could I always call it the Titan Tron because I think of the WWE. <laughs> <laughs> They're the, using this the center the, hung scoreboard, like yeah. all of the screens on the scoreboard. Yeah, so they had cameras on in every direction. So the comedians, because he had several guys opening, they called the Plastic Cup Boys. So there were a series of comedians who came out as warm up. Um, so they had cameras on them at all times. So they were they would often look into the cameras. So no matter where you were sitting, you could look at the screen and and you were looking right at the comedian. Very which neat. Was nice. Um, and then when Kevin Hart came out, I didn't have any feelings going in about him. I I like him as a performer, but his comedy has never appealed to me. Not because I think he's bad. I've just never thought that he's really good. But I think being Seeing him live helps because you really get to feel the energy and you feel his energy. That's why he's so popular because he's so energetic and he's so frantic almost. And he's got, the, like when he speaks, he's got this kind of deep voice, but he does that really high pitch thing. And 
it it's almost grating at times. I'm sure what I just did was terribly grating, but with him, it's funny. And he ha- often has a hard time maintaining his composure, which I also like. You know, when they're trying not to laugh, right. like when it happens on Saturday Night Live, sure. Jimmy Fallon was notorious. Famous for that, sure. But, but it's genuine, right? Yeah, and I like that because it, it makes it, you realize that he's having fun with you. He's not just there to, you know, I'm here to tell some jokes and make a buck and get out of here. I'm not here doing a presentation because I'm forced to do it and yeah. because I'll make a big, thick payday. But he, they had a really strict policy, which I've never seen before, and I, I saw a warning about this a couple of days ahead of time. Cell phones, not only were you not allowed to use them for taking pictures, taking video, if you so much as took it out of your pocket, you'd be thrown out. They were there, So there were warnings on social media everywhere. Security guards, as you were walking in, were just repeating it over and over and over for everybody coming in. No cell phones, no cell phones, no cell phones. You will be thrown out, no refund. And Every staircase in the whole arena had security guards going up and down like sentinels. I had one guy monitoring like 10 rows, just up and down, up Isn't and down. That something And else? they threw like, I bet you they, I heard that they had thrown out, I think, two or three dozen people. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. Nobody told me. Yeah, yeah, they did. They, they told you. About it right at the end, Kevin said, okay, the show's over, so you can pull your phones out now and turn on the flashlights. And uh, sure, it was like instead of pulling out the big lighters, yes. the flashlights were out. Looked pretty cool. And, of course, everybody immediately was taking videos. Oh, my I put goodness. a couple of videos on my Instagram story. But it was fun, man. It was fun. And yeah. uh, I would, uh, he said he'll, I, if anytime he's on tour, he's coming back to Winnipeg. I'm sure he says that to every city, but... You know, well, last, I, remember last time he was here? You know, it was like 30 below. You couldn't believe how cold it was. And then, of course, uh, I realized probably on Sunday that it that he had actually been here. I'm like, yeah, of course, the weather was lousy yeah. when he was here. It was cool and raining. We ended up going up to Lester Beach on, on Saturday. After I got a little bit of a sleep in on Saturday morning, we drove up and went up for a birthday party, came home yesterday afternoon. And sure enough, just as we hit the perimeter, the sky. I broke complete beautiful blue sky always always happens on Sunday late Sunday when afternoon you're coming right home. Yeah, you're coming home so <laughs> didn't even see the lake on on the weekend ah yeah it was not the best weekend for weather but uh, the forecast is uh looking up for this week kind of getting back into a nicer uh set of uh, days here. can we stop Praying for rain now. I think we're good. I hope so. I think we're good. We will, of course, endeavor to make sure that we're not moving on too quickly from the from the wishing for rain. Good song argument. by Junk House, though. Which one's that? Praying for rain. Praying I, for is it? I'm praying for the praying for the rain. Praying for the rain. Well, yeah. uh, you remember that song? Mid nineties? No, I don't. Oh, well, I bet you. Uh, if you heard if it, I heard you remember it, I probably would, would recognize it. Yeah, yeah, I could sing it for you, but I <laughs> I already did one annoying thing with my voice. I don't want to do another one. As I I've admitted the mid-90s can be a little bit of a blur for me sometimes. So, oh! Yes. There, why, why would that be, Greg? Well, um, just as a certain age, uh, working in a certain industry, uh, working certain odd hours, and uh, uh, self-induced in, in, uh, fun with a variety of uh, different uh, beverages, etc. Here it is right now. Junk House, praying for the rain, courtesy of Behind the Glass Jerry on 680 CJOB. Downtown Winnipeg was taken over by 
all the colors of the rainbow yesterday afternoon as thousands of people marched through the streets for the 31st annual Winnipeg Pride Parade. The day began with a rally at the Manitoba Legislature before participants made their way across Broadway and onto Memorial Boulevard for the march. Global News reporter Noan Kal says some participants marched on foot while others were on floats or in on the backs of trucks. Some marched, some rode in floats, while others just sat back and enjoyed the parade. But ask any of the people decked out in rainbow colors at this year's Pride event, and it's clear they are all here for the same cause. This is amazing. There's a smile on everybody's face, there's no judgment, there's no labels, there's no nothing. It's just people. More color, more fun, more acceptance, what's not to love? This year's theme was my first Pride, a celebration of how people first got involved in the event. Sort of celebrating folks' uh, first Pride experiences, whether that's this year or if it happened 10 years ago, and sort of just, uh, you know, understanding that everyone has a unique first Pride experience and we wanted to share that uh, with everyone. Something Holly Peterson is learning as she attends her first parade. I don't know necessarily if the population has grown. It's just become more comfortable with itself. Everybody belongs here, so... Why not? Seeing more and more of the families come with their kids, regardless of their orientation, and just bringing the kids to this warm atmosphere and just the vibe. You, you can't beat the vibe. An atmosphere they hope other cities will learn from. Given the size of our city, and if you look at the turnout and the amount of involvement we have um, from the community, from organizations, from our government, uh, you know, there's lots of support, lots of interest, and I think that that just shows that, you know, that prairie spirit that we have here. Nolan Cole, Global News. No, no, Nolan spoke to Donald Shatner, one of this year's participants, just as the parade was about to get going. So, Donald, today is the 31st annual in Winnipeg. Yes. How many have you been coming to? Uh, this will be my third. Third. And <laughs> talk to me a little bit about oh, okay. how, no how it's evolved. It, I haven't unfortunately been here for enough of the years to see it really progress, but it has definitely gotten bigger. More color, more fun, more acceptance. What's not to love? And uh, I guess more and more people are feeling comfortable coming out mm. in these types of environments. I was just coming to my friend, um, seeing more and more of the families come with their kids, regardless of their orientation, and just bringing the kids to this warm atmosphere and just the vibe. You, you can't beat the vibe. Sure, yeah. Have you met uh, some people here over the years? Um, yeah, I've run into some of my friends. I was in the Pride Parade last year, running out into the crowd, handing stuff out, and then just you're dancing around, you see somebody you know, you run out, you give them a hug, and you just jump right back in. What's your favorite part about the parade itself? I know it hasn't started. Uh, the energy. Like, you cannot beat that. Just pure happiness. And, like, all the color, what's not to love? Donald Shatner, one of this year's participants in the Pride Parade, which happened yesterday. No organizers aren't exactly sure how many people marched this year, but it's likely tens of thousands of people were in attendance, comparable to last year's parade. And uh, one of my friends posted on his Facebook uh, something that I don't know that any that I could say it better. He said, if you want to support this or the, an easy way to support this, it's pretty simple. Don't hate people you haven't ever bothered to meet. I think that's pretty simple. Yeah. And simple life advice all the way around. Former Winnipeg Mayor Glenn Murray was in town for the parade yesterday. Mayor Bowman had a a rainbow design, custom design tur- uh, shirt and rainbow colors that said Winnipeg is good, playing yeah. off the Patrick Line quote. And maybe the big news of the day yesterday, and I'm not sure why it's news, 
Uh, I'm on the fence on this one. Russ Wyatt, Transcona councilman, coming out yesterday and letting everyone know that he's in fact living life as a as a bisexual man. So it was an important day for Russ Wyatt. He felt it was important that he share that with the public yesterday. So uh, if that's freeing him, I I applaud him. Most those, definitely. The Rainbow Winnipeg is good shirts. Were those made by our friend Carly Tardif? They were not. They were actually made by a, a, an artist whose name slips my mind right now. Uh, Brian Bowman had those custom or had his shirt custom made. Kathleen Wynn made an emotional announcement in Toronto on Saturday. Here in Ontario, we live in the very best place in the world. I love this province. I love its people. And even if I won't be leading this province as premier, I care deeply about how it will be led. With the Liberals trailing behind the Progressive Conservatives and the New Democrats in the Ontario polls, Kathleen Wynne says she knows her governing Liberals will lose the Ontario election on Thursday. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. She's six days early on her concession speech. Maybe she just didn't want to waste her time on election night. <laughs> she just wants to get Pull what? clothes and she's uh, off just on the long away, weekend or whatever. Yeah. Goodbye. Adios. I actually kind of like that idea of not pretending because everyone knows the Liberals aren't going to win. It's just an interesting strategy that we don't usually see politically that they're yeah. saying, okay, keep voting Liberals, just... I'm not going to win. Up. Yeah. And is there nothing less interesting on election night than having to listen to the, like the third place leader talk? <laughs> she, Pretending she, she wow, everyone a favor. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, and it, the polls are not even close, right? No. The liberals have 16, 19 They're way percent. Back, way They're like back. way back. But she's Mecca. basically saying, okay, I know I'm not going to win, but please prevent these guys from having lots of power. Please. That's the voice of Christian O'Mell in for Kelly Moore, Jeff Bronze here, Tristan Field Jones, and of course the omnipresent behind the glass. Jerry, you're from Ontario, mm-hmm. Christian, so yes. you have more authority okay. to speak on this than the rest of us. You and Jerry both have authority on this. Jerry, what's your take? Um, I I don't have much respect for Kathleen Wynne uh, uh, on a whole, and this just kind of makes it even less. I mean, you're a leader. You you know what lead. You know, you even if you know you're going to lose, you still need to rally your troops behind you and behind the cause. If you actually believe in what it is you're fighting for, then you shouldn't surrender off the bat just like that. It it boggles my mind that someone who calls themselves a leader would just give up. It is weird to see, and it feels like a slap in the face, too, to all the people that who have been working on our campaign. Absolutely. To her whole team. I don't, I'm, a, I'm of two minds on this. I, I'm sort of with Christian that I think it's, it's kind of refreshing to see this sort of honesty come out of a politician to say, you know what, we're not going to win, so, but you should vote liberal anyway. So she's saying, she's admitting defeat, but saying, let's be strategic here and try to do some, still have an impact as liberals, but in def- but let's do it in defeat. That's where it's hard just, to motivate. Yeah, it's not exactly motivational, and it's just kind of like this sad panda thing that we've never <laughs> sort of seen in politics. Well, Tristan, you're a world class athlete. How do you feel about? Oh this? yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's 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 funny because I think she may have actually just sunk her ship even more, if that's at all possible. Because, and we see this in elections from time to time. I guarantee you, there are a lot of liberal supporters out there who may have heard that and said, "Oh, well, the leader says we're losing and we're screwed, so we're just going to stay home." 
home on election night. So your dream of a minority government may be not not even realized. I mean, look at what happened in 2016 with Donald Trump and a lot of Democrats, a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, because he wasn't the official Democratic nominee. So what did they do? They stayed home. And guess who ended up winning a, yeah. the, you know, and a, and a majority in the Senate and in Congress, too, was Donald Trump. I think uh, by by doing this, I mean, I agree with Brett to, in a sense. I think uh, the honesty is refreshing. Like, look, guys, we're not going to win this, but let's do what we can. But on the flip side, though, you've you've basically endorsed, really, you've endorsed people from voting for you and staying home, which means if she gets a few seats, well, that'll be nice. Well, she did implore people to continue to consider voting for a liberal candidate in or- order to prevent certain individuals from becoming premier but this this feels decidedly odd does it not jeff braun yeah it's weird it's i I like it because it is so weird and you never see anything like this before so it makes it a lot more exciting than a regular election that you would have just lost anyways that's a good point yeah it's interesting too because now now she now that the declaration has been made by win that it's going to be one or the other now it's I'm curious to see who it's going to be the pcs or the ndp but I mean, doesn't how does the song say it? You got to know when to fold them. Like, isn't it wise to sometimes quit while you're ahead to say, okay, I can't win this? Oh, she wasn't ahead. Yeah, she quit while you're behind. In this case, <laughs> if yeah, you're well, day- you fold them when you have a lousy hand, just if, to, to be clear, yeah. right? If your day today was to wake up at six a.m. and start knocking on doors for Kathleen Wynne in, in like a hot, sweaty Toronto or something like that, would you bother getting out of it? No, I think yeah. you, you might have a longer <laughs> breakfast today, without question. It's going to make it difficult, but but fascinating to see how it all comes down. Doug Ford basically had no comment on it, ignored really any questions about it. Good idea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're going to continue to do what we're doing. I think that's all you can do, right? Now, how awkward would it be if by some miracle she ends up with a minority government? Who, Kathleen Wynne? Kathleen Wynne. Just, just, I mean, it's highly unlikely, but how awkward of a speech would that be? (laughs) Just her being like, I know I said we would lose. Just kidding. (laughs) Um... We well, got a text message here that says this makes total sense. It's sort of, and the listener says, it sort of appeals to the voters. With her speech, it may make voters vote liberal. Kind of like, I'll show you. It's an interesting sure. take. I mean, the way it was going for the liberals, right, for the last couple of years, why not try something a little different, right? Because what was their main message wasn't working. It wasn't getting through to people who are just sick of a liberal government that's been there for over a dozen years. Who wants to vote for a loser? She's admitted she's a loser. Who wants to vote for her now? Yeah. 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 If, if, uh, I'm not sure if it's a, if sympathy is the way that people will or that she'll win people, votes. It's probably not the way to go about it. I think if you've already lived, if you live in Ontario, your mind's probably been made up for a while now that you're not voting liberal. It's just a matter of are you voting PC or NDP? Yeah. For the people that are on the fence. I would be stunned if it wasn't a PC minority government, but we'll see. I can tell you that I lived in British Columbia in the mid-1990s when Glenn Clark was elected premier. Nobody expected him to win the election. It was absolutely a stunning come-from-behind victory. So these things do happen, but there's no way she's forming even a minority government. Like this this ship has sunk. There's no question in my mind and clearly not in her own either. So well, that's what everyone said about Trump, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jeff Ron calling for an upset. Thursday in Ontario, mark it down. Greens win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to vote uh, behind a glass, Jerry, as the next Premier of Ontario. He's Can got a do? chance. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Better <laughs> chance than Kathleen Wynn. She's not a loser, so. <laughs> All right. Well, you can once again weigh in. Brett at CJOB.com. GMAC at CJOB.com. You can text us at 204-780-6868. One other person has texted saying she had no chance anyway. Why not make the speech? Yeah. The commuter challenge. Which begins this week, a Green Action Centre inviting Manitobans to participate in the most popular commuting event in Canada. And the Commuter Challenge coordinator is Elizabeth Shearer. She joins us live now on 680 CJOB. Elizabeth, good morning to you. Good morning. I am reporting live from my morning commute. I am walking to work. Good for you, Elizabeth. Where where, where does your walk start and where does it end? You know, I have a pretty decent walk. It's just a 20-minute walk from West Broadway into downtown. Uh, but it's a gorgeous morning. I really appreciated the weather report earlier. Um, I didn't so much like the congestion report, and I'm just feeling uh, for anyone in their car waiting in traffic right now because it's a beautiful day and uh, blue skies. So if you can, walk or bike or bus to work, I'd recommend it. Well, sir, what if you're, you, you're walking to work? That's actually something I used to do when I worked uh, okay. from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. when Mackling and McGarry was on in the afternoon. But now... I don't walk to work because I would not feel safe walking to work at 3.30 in the morning. So if the only option that one has for getting to work is driving, how can one incorporate the commuter challenge into the daily routine? Well, you know, over 80% of Winnipeggers drive, and we totally know that. We totally get that. Uh, Winnipeg is kind of built for the car, uh, as are most North American cities. So if you actually are just completely car-bound and there are no options... Uh, we recommend carpooling. Um, there's a new app that we've launched with Green Action Center called Go Manitoba, and you can actually create a profile, and you're matched up with people that are all along your route, and you can choose to message them. It's like a third-party app, just like Kijiji. You set it up, and you can meet in person. You can exchange information, and you can actually set up a carpool for someone that's already going in the same route as you. Um, for Community Challenge, we also recommend, you know, if you can't carpool, um, uh, or it's not available to you, for instance, like if you're going at 3.30 in the morning like yourself, it's hard to find a, a, a match. Um, we also see ask you if you want to telecommute. So you can actually avoid those kilometers altogether and work from home. Boy, I l- wouldn't mind doing the show from home every once in a while. <laughs> that would be uh, a, a challenge and one I'd like to take on. Elizabeth Shearer is Commuter Challenge Coordinator. She's making her way to work by foot. And so, you know, you call this or it is the most popular commuting event in Canada. And that's so bizarre because you mentioned 80% of Winnipeggers uh, taking a car to work every day. People complain about transit. They also complain about our lack of active transportation mm-hmm. corridors. So uh, does that not tell us to a certain extent that if transit was improved, if we did have better active transportation routes, people would use them? I think for sure, I think you're really onto something there because active and sustainable transportation modes are never going to be chosen by Winnipeggers unless they are convenient. Um, I personally am motivated because it is a healthy option for me. I get to put in a workout before I get to work, end up getting to work with a clear mind, and um, I save money by not owning a car and um, paying for fuel every day. But uh, on, like for the normal average Winnipegger, unless it's convenient, we're not going to do it. But we're seeing every year our numbers continue to grow for Commuter Challenge. And people are participating and logging their kilometers um, because they care about sustainable transportation and they want to show that they are taking action and they're willing to, to take the leap or take on the challenge by 
taking sustainable modes at least during this one week because they're up to the challenge for the week. But we need to continue to make it more accessible or else people won't choose it. Commuter commuter challenge began yesterday, runs through to June 9th. Last year, participants avoided over 94,000 kilograms of CO2 by traveling and logging over 576,000 green kilometers during that challenge. Elizabeth, how does one get involved in this? Do they need to register or can they just do it? Well, you can just do it any day, but to actually register for commuter challenge and become eligible to win prizes, you'll have to go to our website, Green Action Centre. And there's a full list of prizes there. There's links to how to get registered. And it's really quick and easy. You just make a profile. And then every green commute you do this week, you just go on and log your kilometers. All right, Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your walk. Thanks. It's beautiful out. Take care. I miss walking to work. I bet you do. Elizabeth Shear, Commuter Challenge Coordinator, joining us somewhere between West Broadway and downtown on her walk to work as a part of the Green Action Center's Commuter Challenge. Because no one can take away your right to Premier Kathleen Wynne, a sitting premier, has admitted defeat days before a provincial election. The election later this week, third, right, Greg, Thursday? Thursday, correct, sir. Chris Adams is a political scientist at the University of Manitoba. Joins us now live this morning on 680 CJOB. Dr. Adams, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Brett and Greg. Have you ever seen anything like this before, Christopher? Uh, well, I, I have seen past campaigns where a leading party, the incumbent party, I uh, guess virtually wiped out at come election day, and clearly Catherine Wynne has realized their internal polling is showing that they don't have a safe seat anywhere in Ontario. So they've, so so I guess the short answer to your question is is no, I've never seen this before of a sitting premier uh, giving up like this. But I do understand the strategy. Well, and is it a strategy that could lead to more liberal votes or at least some liberal votes because she was begging her liberal supporters to still vote liberal in the hopes of at least keeping some of the power away from whoever does win? Yes. Well, you know, there are a number of, of uh, ride or constituencies or ridings, whatever you want to call them, but number of ridings in which there would be uh, there would be uh, liberal voters who will drift over to the Ford campaign. That's the real threat as well as, of course, we, we assume in Manitoba that Liberal Party supporters drift over to the NDP. But really what, what Wynne is doing is, is she's trying to carve out a third-party strategy here, which we have seen in previous campaigns in, in other elections in which a third party, often it's been the NDP federally, that has said, look, the strategy is we don't really see our leaders as becoming prime minister. And I'm, I'm going back to the 80s and 70s, but we have a strategy in which we put the the party in a position where we will keep the other parties honest in, in Parliament or in the the Legislative Assembly. So really, this is the this is the the game they're they're playing right now with the Ontario Liberals. Uh, you know, on Thursday, I mean, they're talking about they might not even hold official party status, and and in the uh, provincial Parliament, which is what they call it in Ontario, uh, they the uh, in Queens Park is there's a real chance they'll be below that eight seat threshold. So really, they're in desperation mode right now. Well, they're essentially fighting for their political lives as a party okay. in the province of Ontario, in all fairness. That's right. And, you know, if you think back, uh, um, other provincial elections, um, uh, Redford in, in, uh, in Alberta, Christy Clark in, in, in uh, 
British Columbia uh, elections in which it looked pretty desperate for the premier at the time going into the campaign, but they, they pulled it out at the end. Um, that was the strategy here in Ontario, or in Ontario, there in Ontario, it was to have a strategy of, of pulling, uh, pulling a victory out at, from the beginning uh, in the belief that things could get turned around. But, but with uh, less than a week to go, clearly they, they uh, figured out that they don't have a chance to turn it around as other premiers have been able to do. Chris, what, uh, what's gone wrong for Wynne and the Liberals? Why are they so far behind in the polls? Well, I think there are a number of things. I think the, just the length of time they've been in, in power, and we in Manitoba know that feeling when, 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 a, when a government is in, a party is in power for many years, there's just a sense of disenchantment. I, I think also there's been upheaval, upheavals in some of the Ontario economy. The, uh, um, I, I think that, that uh, yeah, you know, we, we know in Ontario hydro rates have been, have been uh, going way up, and, and that's an issue that hits the pocketbook of middle-class people. Uh, there are a number of things that have been piling up, but, and, and over uh, 14, 15 years, these things do add up for voters to, to be disenchanted. But, you know, there is an issue with Ontario Hydro, with the accounting, and the uh, the Auditor General of Ontario has raised real red flags that, that the way they're counting liabilities and and uh, revenues is, is not in accordance to proper accounting yeah. principles. Well, I guess we'll have to leave it there and see what happens Thursday night, and we'll talk about it Friday morning. Thank you, as always, for yeah, your time today. Fascinating, fascinating Thursday night, so Thank maybe all of us will be watching. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's Professor Chris Adams, political scientist at the University of Manitoba. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry with you till 10 o'clock this morning. The future of the Port of Churchill, a focus of conversation over the last year since the rail line that connects that community to uh, the rest of Manitoba, to the rest of Canada, was destroyed. And now plenty of anticipation as it appears as though there is a deal in place to get that rail line up and running again. But at the heart of that community, Brett, is the fact that Churchill is a port. It's a marine port. It's on Manitoba. It's, It's our access to the world by sea. That's right, and the question is being asked, why is Churchill not being used as a deep water port? Jeff Griffiths, former Canadian Forces member and current business consultant, joins us now live on 680 CJOB. And Jeff, you wrote an opinion piece, and the headline there, Churchill could be key to Arctic sovereignty, subheadline, our claim to the North needs action now. Jeff, maybe before we go any further, when we say the words deep water port, what do we mean by that? Uh, well, I, the the idea is you can bring in an ocean going vessel uh, and uh, and have access directly to uh, to international trade routes, um, you know. And when I wrote that article, which is uh, well, I guess the fall of 2016, I was mostly concerned about uh, the uh, Arctic sovereignty issue. But it's uh, since then, as you mentioned, things have changed somewhat. Um, now, I mean, the whole viability of the of the town itself was in question because of the rail line. So is this not a conversation we should be having regardless? Let's take the rail line out of the equation. Let's assume it's back in service. Should Churchill not be at the heart of an Arctic sovereignty strategy for Canada? I, I think so. And, uh, I mean, it's... Uh, when, you, when you look at... Uh, the amount of money that the uh, the Russians are putting into uh, infrastructure uh, on their side of the Arctic, 
um, Canada has very, very little uh, in the way of, uh, of, of a permanent presence up there, very little way to enforce our sovereignty. Uh, if, if uh, uh, you know, as, as the uh, Northwest Passage uh, becomes uh, open uh, for longer stretches of the year, that uh, I think being able to uh, to enforce Canadian jurisdiction in the area is critical. And we do already have, uh, as I mentioned in the article way back when, uh, you know, a, a port facility that's been there uh, since, I believe, the 1930s um, and uh, and has been allowed to fall into disrepair. So I think it points to, it's not only an Arctic sovereignty issue, but I think it points to the uh, you know, as a trading nation, we we need critical logistics and transportation infrastructure all over uh, Canada. Whether that's ports, railways, roads, pipelines, doesn't matter. And we don't seem to have a consistent strategy uh, around any of that in Canada. It seems to be hit and miss by gosh and by golly. Our guest is Jeff Griffiths. He is former Canadian Forces member and current business consultant. And indeed, Jeff, the uh, the article, the opinion piece, appeared in the Winnipeg Free Press, October 13, 2016. You referenced that we have a really small uh, presence up there to defend uh, the coastline. What is the the presence that we have up there? Well, I mean, Canada's uh, uh, has a. a Military presence, the Northern Command is out of uh, Yellowknife. We have uh, a small detachment, a uh, squadron of, uh, of of twin otter aircraft, which are, uh, have been around, uh, I think, since the 1970s. Um, the Canadian Rangers uh, Reserves uh, kind of sprinkled throughout the uh, the remote parts of Canada. Um, we uh, we don't have any uh, permanent naval presence. Uh, in the Arctic, uh, we do some flyovers every now and again I, uh, with uh, surveillance aircraft uh, out of either Comox or Dreamwood. Uh, but it, it's uh, it, it's something we it almost seems to be uh, an afterthought. Um, you know, and it, it's it's not the most hospitable place to be, and it's um, it's an expensive place to operate. But sovereignty, you know, you use it or lose it. If we don't enforce our uh, our, our will uh, and our uh, our sovereignty in the Arctic, someone else will do it for us. Now, in the last several years, Canada, along with other NATO countries, has committed to spending up to 2% of its GDP on the military. And uh, based on the numbers that you researched from 2013, uh, Canada is uh, way behind on this. Or Now, this is as of 2016. Have we gotten any closer? Uh, I'm just doing it off the top of my head, we're looking at $18.6 billion out of $48 billion, which would match the 2% commitment. Uh, that's basically uh, roughly one-third. We're, we're, we're way off here, are we not, Jeff? Um, yeah, I mean, Canada's consistently lagged uh, behind that 2% commitment. And, I mean, we're not the only NATO country that uh, that lags in that area. Um, the, the But... Uh, there's other ways, and and uh, and I think uh, uh, interesting ways that we can uh, we can credit investments in protecting Arctic sovereignty and enforcing uh, our control over it as a contribution to NATO. Uh, we are a NATO member, and uh, our primary adversary in NATO uh, 
has been and and still is the uh, uh, what had been the Soviet Union now the Russians. So um, being able to uh, uh, to keep an eye on what the Russians are doing in the Arctic via uh, a, a significant uh, investment in in Arctic sovereignty uh, would go a long way towards uh, uh, meeting that two percent commitment. Just a traffic. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. Oh, I say, and and uh, and we can do a, a little bit of nation building and uh, and and growth in in a critical area that's been largely ignored in Canada. Um, so, uh, I think there, there's there's value in in making some significant investments in the Arctic. Jeff Griffiths, former Canadian Forces member and current business consultant. Hey, thank you very much for joining us this morning to talk about uh, Churchill and. The, the, the ongoing problems up there and uh, the sort of, as you pointed out, the port has been allowed to fall into a state of disrepair. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Right now, Greg, you've been anxiously sort of awaiting the, the Trump Twitter show to resume this morning. Has mm-hmm. he tweeted anything of note? Well, he has. In fact, it leads us right into our next conversation. About 26 mi- minutes ago, the President of the United States tweeted, China already charges a tax of 16% on soybeans. Canada has all sorts of trade barriers on our agricultural products. Not acceptable! Exclamation mark. And then a couple of minutes later says, the U.S. has made such bad trade deals over so many years that we can only, and in all caps, win! Exclamation mark. Our guest to find out what is the American rationale for imposing tariffs on its allies. David Redlosk, chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Delaware and co-author of The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. Mr. Redlosk, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So the president uh, really kind of doubling down on this whole idea of import tariffs against not only China, but Canada. The big question I think we have on this side of the border is, is what is America's and what is the president's rationale here? If we can ask uh, such a, a sweeping question, David. You can ask such a sweeping question. I don't know that I have an answer. <laughs> it's not clear. <laughs> it's not clear at all that there is a Uh, let's say, an economic rationale or a trade rationale or a rationale that uh, we would recognize from, uh, you know, 70 years of of the post-war international order. I I honestly think that a lot of what we're seeing in these kinds of activities by the president is um, a reflection of his own ego, his own will, his own personality. Um, everything's transactional. He, I think, thinks by doing uh, big strokes that are the exact opposite of what the experts tell him to do, that um, he will somehow win. Now, does he have any supporters on this front as far as these tariffs are concerned? Well, the American public is not a supporter in the general sense. That is, the, the polling on tariffs... Uh, first, I should back up. The American public doesn't know very much about tariffs. Uh, but when we see national polls on the question of free trade and tariffs and, and what have you, the public is very much in favor of uh, uh, trade deals, not tariffs. And so this is not something that, that public opinion supports. 
it's also not something, as far as I can tell from what I've read, that any real mainstream economist supports. And it isn't so much the tariffs themselves immediately. They, they probably don't have a huge impact on the economy, but it's the treatment of long-term allies with whom we've built this international order that has you know, kept things reasonably stable for a very long period of time. That's, I think, the bigger problem. It's a political problem as much as anything. Now, The Art of the Deal was a book uh, co-written uh, or written entirely, depending on who you listen to, uh, by President now President Trump. And one of the things he talks about, one of the 11 winning negotiation tactics that he, he cites is fighting back, uh, number eight on his list of 11. In most cases, I'm very easy to get along with. I'm very good to people who are good to me. But when people treat me badly or unfairly or try to take advantage of me, my general attitude all my life has been to fight back very hard. I think this is exactly what's going on right now, David. I, I, I think that's right. I think for some reason he believes that the you know the United States has been taken advantage of, and I, I don't think that that's... Um, a particularly reality-based position, but, you know, trade and international negotiations are always a back-and-forth kind of thing. At times, one side's up, at times, the other side's up. The goal, of course, is for everybody to gain, and um, and I don't think Trump understands any of those nuances. As far as he's concerned, it's like a kid on a playground. You know, I feel like I was hit, so I'm going to hit back, and then I'm going to get hit again, and we have a trade war. One final question here, David. Uh, one of the things I saw CNN reporting on is the fact that these tariffs are going to likely result in increased cost of beer in the United States. How do you think people will react to that? Uh, not particularly well, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say, particularly now we're into the summer, right? We're into top beer season. So maybe that's where you really hit people in their pocketbook. All right, David Redlosk, chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Delaware and co-author of The Positive Case for Negative Campaigning. Thank you very much for joining us this morning on CJOB. Thanks. I've uh, often professed my love for Young and the Restless. Yeah. Days of our lives, once upon a time. And I was just uh, looking up some uh, Russian soap operas. Yeah, because there've been a bunch of different stories that are like soap operas over the last week in Russia. We're going to tell you about that in just a moment. Ben Bednaya Nastaya, poor Nata, poor Nastaya, nickname for Anastaya. That's uh, the most popular Russian serial oh, okay. soap opera. Neurodis uh, Krasivoy. Not Born Beautiful is Russia's version of the Colombian soap that the American television series Ugly Betty was based on. Oh, okay. And Lyubov Kaklubov, Love is Love, is the Russian version of a Polish generational drama. That's just to name a few Russian soap operas. Valiant attempts on all of those, I yeah, think. So they all sounded pretty good to yeah, me. Thanks, Jerry, buddy. you're the linguist here, sort of. Mm, come on, You're the man. accent guy. How do you do? It sounded pretty good to me. Thank yeah. you. Thank well, hey, you. If Jerry approves. Yes. Da. Da. Very good. Um, so this morning we come in 
And there's a story about a Russian pilot, presumed dead, found alive 30 years later in I Afghanistan. What is the deal with all of these Russian journalists faking deaths and coming back from the dead? <laughs> well, at least one of those. And then a Russian pilot, presumed dead, found alive 30 years later in Afghanistan. And the quote in the headline from Global News, it's very astonishing. A Russian pilot believed to have been shot down and killed 30 years ago during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, has been found alive and wants to come home, according to Russian military officials. He's still alive. It's very astonishing. Now he needs help. That is a quote from the head of the Russian paratroopers union, Valery Vostrotin. He told RIA Novosti State News Agency on Friday... The pilot, who has not been named because of confidentiality reasons, was thought to have been shot down in a plane in 1987 and is now likely in his 60s. This is according to the deputy head of Battle Brotherhood, which is a Russian veterans organization. As we know, the Soviet-Afghanistan war took place between 1979 and 1989. During that time, IRA Navosti reported that 125 Soviet planes were shot down in Afghanistan when Soviet troops pulled out in 1989. Around 300 soldiers were missing. Kalinin also suggested the pilot could be in Pakistan, where Afga- uh, Afghanistan had camps for prisoners of war. Since then, around 30 have been found and most have been returned to their home countries. So, yeah, this is uh, in 2013, another Russian soldier who had disappeared and was presumed dead during the Soviet-Afghan war was found living in Afghanistan. And uh, this person had been last seen in September 1980 at the age of 20, seriously wounded during a battle and presumed dead. So this is just an incredible story. Just a met 30 years later, so you, they think you're dead. Turns out you're not. Yeah. Well, this other guy that uh, came back from Afghanistan says simply, I stayed in Afghanistan because a- Afghans were very kind and hospitable people. <laughs> Just didn't stay, want to go yeah, home. No, stay here. I like it here. Yep. Now, <laughs> <laughs> the other story we were referencing, pig's blood and makeup. Russian journalist details how his murder was faked. This, this is unbelievable. This is really unbelievable. I'm not sure how to say this uh, gentleman's name. I think it's Arkady is his first name. Babchenko, the dissident Russian journalist who faked his own death in Ukraine, said on Thursday last week he felt he had to undertake the ruse because he feared he would share the fate of poisoned former Russian spy Sergei Skripal. Ukrainian officials report on Tuesday night that Babchenko, a Kremlin critic, had been gunned down in his apartment building in Kiev. Lurid pictures of, of, of him lying in a pool of blood were published, and officials suggested Russia was behind the assassination, something Moscow flatly denied. A day later, Babchenko appeared in public alive, and Ukrainian security officials said they had faked his death to thwart and expose what they described as a Russian plot to assassinate him. But that drew criticism from some media defenders and commentators who questioned whether the ruse and the false outpouring of grief and finger-pointing at Russia it generated had undermined credibility in journalism itself and in Kiev, handing the Kremlin a propaganda gift in the process. Babchenko hit back in a joint interview saying that he had gone along with a ruse organized by Ukrainian security officials because he feared for his life. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Pig's blood and makeup. (laughs) Pig's his murder. Well, hey, you know what? Let's face it. Uh, There are... 
dissident voices in Russia uh, have to be very careful. They are often found dead. Mm-hmm. And this gentleman, as a journalist, was trying to share stories and uh, rub the Kremlin a long way for a long time and felt as though he was going to be uh, taken down at some point. I'm still not exactly clear what this proves by faking his death and bringing him back from the dead, but it's a fascinating story. You found a a disturbing story from the New York Times at first, CNN also reporting on it. What's the headline here? Facebook defends sharing user data with phone makers. Now, do you remember when Mark Zuckerberg went to Congress? Uh, I guess it was in the last uh, six, seven weeks. Yep. Yeah. Well, here's what he had to say at uh, that point in time. We don't sell any data to anyone. We don't sell it to advertisers and we don't sell it to developers. What we do allow is for people to sign into apps and bring their data Uh, And it used to be the data of some of their friends, but now it isn't um, with them. And that, I think, makes sense. I mean, that's basic data portability, the ability that you own the data. You should be able to take it uh, from one app to another if you'd like. No, just bring it along. Yeah. We'd love to have you. (laughs) Okay. And we don't sell anything. Sure. I'm starting not to believe Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Facebook on the defensive once again over how it handles people's personal data. This from CNN. Under scrutiny this time is the company's practice of sharing information about its users with dozens of smartphone and tablet makers. And they, quote, they refer to this New York Times investigation, which was published just last night, which revealed the scope of data sharing deals that Facebook struck over the years with companies like Apple, Samsung, and Microsoft. The partnerships give some device makers access to Facebook users' education history, relationship status, work, religion, political leaning, and upcoming events. Microsoft, Samsung, and Apple, what's left? I guess the only other major phone manufacturer would would be BlackBerry. And, of course, their share of the market is shrinking. I can't think of anybody else. LG is, has, I've got an LG phone, but th- those are the big ones. Apple and Samsung are the kings of the, the mobile device market for sure. And uh, a blog, Facebook, imagine that in a blog, Facebook, con- uh, Facebook confirms some parts of the Times report. But disputed others. It said forge partnership. It forged partnerships. Uh, yeah, one little word changes the whole sentence, doesn't it? It said it forged partnerships with around sixty companies back when mobile phones were less powerful and app stores did not yet exist. The social media company said it gave device makers access to software only so they could build versions of Facebook that worked on different phones or operating systems. That does not mean they did not have possession of that information, Brett. Yeah, and uh, we said, you know, this is, we were asking the question, why do we suck at being cyber secure? And we've discussed it in the, the past when the, these data breaches happen, and, and we learned all kinds of ways and how you can go into your Facebook settings and sort of, change different security settings. One of the reasons that we're bad is just because we don't read the fine print, but they make it difficult to read the fine print because there's so much of it. There's a, so When you go into your security settings, it can be hard to find things. But another thing, too, is just laziness or, or lack of uh, vigilance when you're downloading apps, particularly in, in the Android market. I know Apple is a lot more... I think they they have a stricter vetting process, but Android's more open market. So you got to be careful with what you're downloading to your phone because a lot of these apps need permission to your camera and to this and to that. And like if I download an app, like I had a flashlight app 
And I later learned that downloading an actual flashlight app to your phone is dangerous because they can give get access to your camera and everything. And uh, so I deleted it because I didn't know that because I was sloppy in my research and downloading that. Well, here's sometime the clue, sometimes the clue, that word free right beside the app, right? Yeah. We know nothing is free. We inherently know that. Yet we click on it, we download it, we invite these apps to live on our phone, and we freely give up our information when we click, I agree, and we've got to stop. We've spoken over the phone, excited to introduce our next guest, getting some international recognition. That's right, Jessica Scott-Reed, who's a freelance writer. Her works appear all over uh, media here in Canada, including uh, McLean Magazine, CBC News, and maybe we'll have to get you to write some stuff for us at some point, Jessica. I'd love to. Jessica is the wife and Winnipegger who's married to former Manitoba Moose, Brandon Reed, and they're both in studio with us. As you mentioned, Brett, great to meet you face-to-face, Jessica. And Brandon, welcome back to Winnipeg. It's always great to see you in town. Good to be back. Yeah, parts of one, two, three, four seasons with the Moose. Extremely successful. And uh, congratulations, Allberg Pirates. You're the head coach there. Now, they're in the Metaligan. The Metaligan. Metaligan, yeah. Gotta love that as a hard rock fan. Yeah. I love that stuff. You guys were, uh, your team was champions this year. And uh, recently, uh, well, I guess over the weekend, you got some pretty good news about uh, about the how your performance as coach was viewed. Yeah. Uh, this year was uh, actually the last two years that we've been involved with the Alberg Pirates in the Metaligan. Uh, has been very successful. We had a lot of uh, a lot of fun over there. We've made a lot of moves for the organization and uh uh, this year I was named coach of the year, so it's um, it's an exciting time for me as a coach, but also for uh, Alberg, the city. Uh, you know, it's been 37 years since they've won a championship, so uh, I think they're still celebrating. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that, Brandon. Just looking at the, the logo, Greg pointed out, he said, oh man, come look at this logo. The logo for the Alberg Pirates is wild. If you want to Google it, by the way, if you're listening, it's uh, spelled A-A-L-B-O-R-G. Pirates. How many teams in Metal Um There were 10, and then this year was the first year that they had 11. Um, so, yeah, 11 teams. Okay, and uh, what's the fan sport like uh, in Denmark? Well, I think uh, if you go around the league, there's obviously some of the smaller budget teams who um, have a, a lower base, uh, on average probably about 1,500. Uh, but if you go with our team, um, you know, in the playoffs, we were maxing out at about 5,500 a game. So um, for for a league that's known to um, bring in uh, fresh imports, younger imports who want to make a name for themselves or coaches, for example, like me, um, you know, it's pretty good numbers uh, if you look at it that way. Well, and uh, obviously one of the premier exports from Denmark in terms of hockey, two of them really, Lars Eller doing amazing things for the Capitals uh, all throughout the playoffs. And, well, he'd probably like to start the playoffs all over again, uh, not because he played poorly, but Nikolai Ehlers uh, had zero goals uh, throughout the playoffs, but one of the superstar players, uh, not only for the Winnipeg Jets, but one of the future stars in the National Hockey League. So talk about Denmark. They kind of... They go in and out of being relegated and not necessarily participating in the, in the World Junior Hockey Championships, and and they'll uh, come and go from the World uh, Senior Men's Hockey Championships. But is there a real c- hockey culture growing there, Brandon? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, the more NHL players that get involved from Denmark, uh, the more kids follow, the more kids get more, 
committed to the game. Uh, the parents get more committed. They see these NHL Danish players come into the NHL and they get excited. And um, if you look at the metal league and the the caliber has gone up quite a bit uh, over the last five years, especially the last three seasons. I think uh, them being a, a part of the Champions Hockey League uh, now, um, which states them as one of the best leagues uh, in Europe. Um, the Danish program they have now for for the up and coming players, I think, is getting uh, more consistent with their U20 and U18 and U16 programs. They're really, really committed to to throw a lot more camps throughout the season. Uh, they have a lot more tournaments, so they're playing against high caliber players. Um, and I think they're they're on the right path to create that uh, momentum to keep them in that A pool uh, for for a more consistent basis. Our guests in studio are Brandon Reed, former Manitoba Moose player, now coaching in Denmark and is recognized as Coach of the Year in Denmark. Congratulations. Jessica Scott-Reed is a journalist and is Brandon's wife. And we're going to ask you shortly, Jessica, (laughs) uh, about... Here's the headline on this. Throwing animals on the ice makes all sports fans look like boors. Love that word. So we'll we'll get into that in a moment. But Brandon, uh, why Denmark? How'd you end up there? Uh, Well, I had a... My agent, my European agent, he's from Denmark. Um, I was playing in the KHL. Um, unfortunately, that was my last season. I had a career-ending injury where I blew up both my hips, uh, both groins, and fractured my pubic bone going into the boards the wrong way. Jeez. So, yeah. um, you know, I still had some hope and did the rehab and uh, all the extra work, and but it never turned out that it, uh, I could get back on the ice. So... Um, I was a little bit confused on what I wanted to do. I wanted to stay in hockey. I had a chance to go coach as an assistant coach with the uh, sledge uh, Olympic sledge hockey team here in Canada. Uh, and that was a really mind-opening uh, experience for me, um, especially because I was feeling kind of sa- sorry for myself after the injury. And then you walk into a room and you see these guys, you know, happy and smiling. And then, you know, they have one leg, no legs, uh, all the trauma that they've been through and them having a smile on their face, that kind of changed the outlook on where I was going to be and how I was going to act. Uh, and then I got an opportunity to um, go to Denmark and coach a U20 uh, program in the hometown of my agent, where he was from in Voynes, and be a part of uh, head coaching the Division One team, which is one level under the Metal League. Uh, and I had a really good success there. And... Um, Alberg Pirates uh, came into play and and then uh, signed a one year deal uh, and then about a month and a half in they they re-signed me for two more seasons and uh, uh, me and my wife we loved it there our daughter was born in Alberg and uh, the team had a lot of success we we won the championship this year so the three year plan got uh, minimized to two years and and uh, everybody's happy about that so. That's the story. Brandon Reed, former Manitoba Moose player, now the head coach. Well, former head coach in in Austria, Alberg Pirates. They are the league champ, champions in Denmark. But some exciting news about the future for Brandon and his lovely wife, Jessica Scott Reed, who is a Winnipegger and also a journalist. And uh, you wrote this article that caught our attention. Throwing animals on the ice makes all sports fans look like boors, of course. Drawing on what we're seeing in, I mean, we've seen it in Detroit for years with the 
octopus, and then in Nashville, I think to compete with the octopus yeah. in Detroit, they started throwing catfish on the ice in Nashville. And you say, "Hey, hold on here. This is a little. This is this is yucky. Why are we doing this? It's not a good look for hockey fans." Yeah, and it started with this lovely letter from a young girl in Winnipeg um, to the Nashville management asking them to stop this awful tradition. And it seemed like it took this young girl to shake people up and say, "Hey, wait a minute. Yeah, this is." kind of ridiculous and and I and I agree with her you know I'm a hockey wife I've I've been around hockey for over a decade now and I see these different kinds of traditions and I know how important these sort of superstitions and things are but this one just seems like it should go there's no reason we need to be teaching children that animals are you know objects to be throwing on the ice and it just looks gross well, why shouldn't I, I get it, and I, I'm in full agreement with you. But why should we not be using the animals? What is the concern? Well, I, I think you know, as our culture is evolving, we're we're learning more about uh, animal sentience and the fact that you know they have lives too, they have feelings too, and and I just don't think it's a proper lesson to be teaching children or to be perpetuating within our culture in general that uh, animals are objects to be thrown on the ice or to be done anything to. To be honest, <laughs> it's a waste of food too, right? That's another argument. It's it's a waste. I'm just reading this here. Uh, the tradition then evolved over time, incorporating other hopefully deceased animals thrown by fans of other NHL teams. We were talking about the catfish and the octopus. A uh, shark with an octopus in its <laughs> mouth in the San Jose Dream. I don't remember this. I had to look it up. I didn't see it myself, thank goodness. But yeah, that happened. Yeah. It's pretty. I mean, the, the tradition, the, the reason why, do you, can you explain the, how it started with the octopus? It's, it's a very long-standing tradition, and there's actually no um, final reasoning. There's a couple of different guys who have all uh, taken credit for this, and I think it has something to do with the markets and that people just went and got it. I don't think there really is a very good reason for it. No, the, the reason, thing. no, the theory or the idea, as I understand it, in, in Detroit had to do with having to win eight games to the win the tentacles. Stanley Cup. Eight tentacles, blah, blah, blah. I feel like that was added later to give it some legitimate. Yeah, 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 perhaps. You know, you never, <laughs> I mean, hey, I was in, uh, my brother was actually in Phoenix and they were talking about the whiteout and how it started. And in Phoenix, they were under the interpretation, the impression that a Jets fan had died at a Jets game what? during the playoffs, and it was, the whiteout was a tribute to this wow. guy who had died at a game. I kid you That's not. That's how these things evolve over time. Right? It's ridiculous. So, so if you want to look that up, we can email you a link to that article from Jessica Scott Reed. We have about a minute left here, Brandon. You're uh, you just won Coach of the Year in Denmark, but you're not going to be in Denmark anymore. Where are you going? Where are you going to be next season? Uh, yeah. Jess and I uh, will be heading off to Krefeld, Germany. Um, we had an offer uh, put in place actually to us a little bit before the playoffs started, um, but we didn't want to deal with that uh, until we knew that we had won the championship and things were done in Alberg there. Uh, so we'll be in Krefeld in the uh, German Elite League now for the next three seasons. Uh, have an opportunity to turn a team around, an organization around who hasn't been very successful the last couple seasons. Uh, they didn't make the playoffs last year and finished dead last, so um, it's going to be basically the same kind of situation I was put into Alberg there and see if we can bring some life and some energy and, you know, maybe get a whiteout going here in the playoffs. <laughs> All right. Well, Brand, Brandon Reed, former Manitoba Moose player, now coaching in Germany next season, and Jessica Scott Reed, a Winnipegger, journalist, and wife to Brandon Reed. Thank you very much for coming to visit us in studio. It's a pleasure to meet us. you both. Thanks, guys. You know, one of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Mo Leggett, uh, was a part of Nutcracker. 
That's here, true. and he t- he was actually quite uh, pleased. He was r- happy at his time in RW and the RWB school. I think he actually did more than what was mandatory, oh, right? By a long shot. Is that right? Or I'll ask. We'll ask our guest, um, Arlene Minghorst. He was performing with the company in Nutcracker. I wasn't at that show, but I know that some of them wanted to do an extra lift with one of the ballerinas. So maybe that's what you're referring to. Okay. Yeah, we heard that uh, he said he kept coming back. He wanted to to do more. Um, Probably because it helped him uh, with the football, and I think he just enjoyed it. Well, my favorite football player when I was a kid was Lynn Swan, who did ballet for years and years. It added to his athleticism, his ability to go up and catch the ball, graceful as a swan, as his name would (laughs) would indicate. But uh, Arlene Minkhorst is our guest this morning, and you were just here to see us a couple of weeks ago. We loved visiting with you, and now you're returning this morning to... Well, share in the news that you are leaving the RWB school to pursue an international opportunity, one we can't discuss this morning, but we will congratulate you on, uh, well, how long have you been with the RWB school? Well, I've been with the school for a long time. I came as a student in 1976 and joined the staff in 1979, so almost 40 years now. Wow. Well, would never would guess that would even be possible, but that's a side note. Uh, so we can't talk about where you're going, but what about where you've been and talk about the last 40 years and, and what an adventure it's been here in Winnipeg. Yeah, the, the Royal Winnipeg Ballet really is my second family. Um, I grew up in the school as a student, and uh, I think I'm the artist today because of the opportunities that I've had with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. And it's not been an easy decision to um, make the choice to leave, but it it's a time for everybody at some point, and uh, I think the time is now. I can't speak to the new opportunity because it's not announced yet. Um, I gave the RWB as much notice as I can um, just to help in the transition and to to make sure that they had time to prepare. So um, when it's announced, I'd be happy to speak about it. Now, you've also uh, gotten to do some guest teaching and dance competition, jury stuff uh, all over the world. Um, Maybe just rattle off a couple of the spots you've been. So I've been a member of uh, the jury of the Youth America Grand Prix competition, which is probably the the largest competition in uh, the world for um, since 2004, I believe. And uh, I go to these competitions to recruit talent for the school. And um, we have several dancers who come from all of these competitions who are training in the school, and some of them have gone into the company from these, these, uh, our discovery of them in these places. And um, it's also an opportunity for me to meet international colleagues. Um, some of the people that I work with now on international committees I met through these competitions. So where are you from? Where did you grow up, and how did, how did we get you here? Uh, I was born in Montreal. Uh, my family moved to Ontario when I was 10, and I, I went to the National Ballet School in Toronto. And when I graduated there, I needed some more training, so I came to Winnipeg. I thought I'd be here for two years just to train and then go somewhere and find a job dancing. And, well, I'm still here, so <laughs> it didn't quite work out the way I thought. Um, but, yeah, it's, this has become my home, Winnipeg. Happy accident. And I knew the I knew your story and I love the way you tell it because uh, obviously there is some trepidation when you are from Eastern Canada and, you know, the next option is Winnipeg and we have a certain reputation elsewhere. But I'm sure you've done more than your share to to break and, and to shatter the, you know, the misconceptions about our community uh, elsewhere. Absolutely. Winnipeg is a very special place and... Um, 
you know, in terms of art, you can practice beautiful art anywhere. You can do it on a, you know, in your living room, a painting, a, p- a picture. So you don't need to be in the best place in the world. And, and in terms of Winnipeg and the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, I think our isolation sometimes has been our advantage because we've been able to create from within. The Royal Winnipeg Ballet, we like to say that it's a, you know, world-renowned organization, institution. Is that... You know, is, is that exaggeration at all? Like when you go to places like Japan or when you go to Berlin, Germany for these other con, uh, contests, Royal Winnipeg Ballet, what's the reputation in places like that? Well, I think we are known. Um, I think maybe we used to tour more than we did. So the company was a little more well known before than we are right now because touring is more difficult. I think... Um, I think the school is better known now than it was because I've been working to build some international connections and build some partnerships with our international community. And I'm sure that relationship won't suddenly end Absolutely once you not. leave, right? So right. Uh, probably count on you as being an ambassador for uh, the city and the RWB school as well as you uh, move along. When you go to the places like Berlin for, I'm, I'm going to try to say this, but you can correct me, Tansolimp? That's correct. Very good. Uh, so that was where a, a place where you were a member of the jury uh, for uh, something there. Is ballet different or are there differences in ballet depending on where you are in the world, like subtle differences or maybe big differences? Absolutely. I mean, good dance is good dance. Um, but there are different systems of training. There are different philosophies of training and um there are um, opportunities for, for young people, for instance, to go to kinds of schools that train in the way that their talents uh, can be developed better than others. And so, um, yeah, I think there are very distinct differences. The one thing I think I learned most from you in our last visit, Arlene, was this idea of dance is one thing, but performance is another. Mm-hmm. And and being able to portray and to tell a story while dancing is, a, is a, an additional skill that not every dancer necessarily can evoke. Absolutely. And, and um, there are dancers that we call them studio dancers. They do phenomenal technical work, but they're not... Uh, such strong performers. And then there's other artists who are incredible communicators with their audience, but maybe not as technically strong. So now that you are vacating the position of director at the RWB school, a uh, post that you have held since uh, 2004, is this sort of like a like a hot ticket job? Like, are there going to be people sort of flooding the inbox at RWB school to, to try to take your spot? You know, um, that'll be up to uh, Mr. Lewis, who's the CEO and artistic director of the company, to decide how he wants to manage that. Um, we're, we're planning an interim uh, transition period, and um, I guess over the next months they'll figure out exactly what is the best thing to do. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you over the last few weeks. Sorry that uh, you're moving on, but I hope we can stay in touch over the years, Arlene, and thank you for all the incredible work you've done, not only on on behalf of the RWB School of Dance, but also on behalf of our community. Well, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Arlene Minkhorst is the director of the Royal Winnipeg Ballet School. She is leaving after decades of work at the RWB for an international opportunity, which we can't tell you about right now until they announce it thanks for giving us a heads <laughs> a up mystery though. it is it's, it's a I'm, mystery I'm I'm, we, we don't know we haven't uh, she hasn't given up the information so we're not going to try to pry it out of her Arlene thanks for stopping by I'm Brett he's Greg behind the glass Jerry and Tristan Field Jones in for Chanelie today on 680 CJOB and